Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Okay, I think we're there. Good evening, everybody. I hope this finds you all well. Uh, apologies there, we probably trebled or doubled up on some of the montage introduction, but um, as I said, it's still early days with the podcast. Uh, I'm Chris Rawl. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando turned author, adventure, adventurer, charity type guy, and, and uh, do a bit of life coaching. It is my great delight to welcome back to the podcast Robin Horsfall, former SAS trooper, um, was involved in the infamous Iranian embassy siege and has done a whole lot of other stuff like, like many of us with his life. So, Robin, how are you, sir? Hi, Chris. Good evening. Nice you... to be here. Yes, it's nice, it's nice to see you again. How was the... Um, did you get any feedback from our podcast? Yeah, I had some great feedback from it. You know, some uh, uh, a lot of people came up on my uh, web pages and on my Facebook and uh, and said that they they got an awful lot from it. Very supportive, nothing negative. Um, you know, and um, that was very encouraging. It's always good to have nice feedback from people. You do always you, you do always notice the abuse, but you don't. You, 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 it's nice to get the good stuff as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Oh, hang on. Yes, hello again, friends. Sorry, we had a bit of interruption there. Seems to happen on every live uh, show that we do. And I, I'll be honest, it's not always my fault. It's generally, it's not a boot neck in technology. It's generally that they release all this technology so quickly these days that it's not always, it's not always glitch, glitch free. So um, I think we're here now. So Yes, good feedback on the um, podcast, Robin. We got, um, which wasn't a surprise uh, to me, to be honest. Um, we got thousands upon thousands of views, and it's um, it's quite amazing, really, to think that almost seventy thousand people have watched our our chat and our chat and the clips that I put out. Which is um, that would fill a, f a few football stadiums, wouldn't it? At least one. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it was Plymouth Argyle, it, it would feel quite a few. <laughs> so, um, how's life treating you? How's the Northern Ireland Veterans Campaign going? I saw a couple of posts yeah, well, from you there. Yeah, I've been putting some um, uh, material up about it. Um, COVID-19 has taken an awful lot of wind out by everybody's sails this year. And, you know, so even with protest movements, it's very hard to uh, keep that momentum going. So... We've been working behind the scenes. We've been raising some funds. We've been looking forward to next year when the court cases come up again um, and um, trying to keep people buzzing on the same subject. Uh, if people don't hear from you, if they don't know what's going on, then they get bored, then they wander off onto, onto other things. So it's important for the veterans that support us about the Northern Ireland uh, persecutions that... Um, that they know that we're still active, we're still working hard. We've been in Parliament uh, on the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee and uh, we're planning to get everybody back out marching next year, fighting in the House and, um, and, and keeping the pressure on. 
Uh, but at the moment, it's the wisest thing to do not to gather in huge crowds, as we all know. So, um, you know, we're using this time. We're using this time effectively. That's what. That's all I can really say. Brilliant, brilliant. And did the um, did the podcast and its feedback? Did that bring back any sort of fresh memories, or 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 did you go over the ones that you had? Uh, no, not so much that. I got you got messages through by people on LinkedIn and by people on Facebook and uh, through my web pages, and um, you know they were pretty much saying how much they enjoyed it. And I, I that I didn't realise that we went on for three hours. <laughs> so yeah. the people to actually listen to you and I having a discussion for three hours, um, you know that's uh, that's quite encouraging. You know, um, I do um, often put myself out there as the veteran's gobshite because um, shutting me up's the big problem and, um, you know, knowing knowing what the time is. and But we, we did really well, didn't we? I think we did really well. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it was excellent. And um, a few points kept coming up and one of them was the honesty. I think in this day and age of false celebrity and, <clears throat> and politicians' lives and and the, the social media of everyone trying to pretend that there's somebody that they're not um i think i think the people out there just appreciate people that cut through the bullshit and are just you know willing to kind of put put their egos at bay and just say it how it is um, yeah there's a there's a big difference between uh, cutting through the bullshit and uh, actually being open and honest um about yourself and about your experiences and and your mess ups and so on um some people regard cutting through the bullshit as being aggressive and in somebody's face. Um, and um, that's, uh, that's not the same thing at all. Cutting through the nonsense is, is really just um, accepting that you're a fairly ordinary human being and you do make mistakes. And, and when people see it, then they, they usually recognize it um, because you, there, there's something in people's body language that shows that it's an act or it's a lie. And they figure you out, uh, or a, a large percentage of them figure you out. And it doesn't do you any favours in the long term. It might sell a few books in the short term, but it doesn't do you any good in the long term. No, that's right. And it, yeah, the whole book thing, I'll be careful what we say here because I don't want to single out any individuals, but it is a, it, it, as an author <laughs> myself, it's quite hard when you hear these gushing reviews of somebody somebody's book when you just know because you're on the inside that a lot of it's fabrication and but you yourself wrote a book that was just bloody honest and you put yourself on the line and you 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 put yourself out there hopefully to to empower other individuals to either not make your mistakes or to make them but but to learn by them and um and you get some scathing amazon review that or you get some say this is a load of shit. <laughs> it's it's like, and then they go, you, but you should read this book by so and so, and you're like, no. In fact, yeah, Chris, there's seventy thousand people out there. Look, you know, <laughs> there you go. Look, there's Robin's book, folks. That's my first blog. <laughs> Fighting scared, and um, yeah, with a name like that, you you kind of already know it's going to be from a humble perspective. Um, one thing I get is, um, oh, you should read Shantaram, and I say. Yes, but it's fiction. My book is yeah. a memoir. Shantaram yeah. was, they tried to release it as a memoir. And then because it, it, people poke so many holes in it, they the publisher then released it and it's got, 
it's got fiction written on the back now. No disrespect to I think it's Gregory David Roberts. I'm sure. I think from what I can tell, he's an awesome guy. But it's um, yes, the whole world of writing is it can conjure up um, yeah, a certain amount of issues and uh, emotional. emotional writing writing a, writing a novel is hard work. I mean, it's the great challenge for any writer because you have to invent everything. You have to invent the characters. You have to invent the scenes. You have to invent the whole thing. You have to build it like a detective story, you know, and remember where everybody is and how old they are and, you know, whether they had a beard or blue eyes right the way through the story. Um, so it's a real challenge. And, you know, I'm trying hard to work on one at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And there's another one. Hang on. That's yours. I get the guy. I get the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that is my that was my first novel, The Drift. Yeah. And. I I took a bit of a unique angle, Robin, because I didn't want your cliche, you know, dashing SAS hero that everything's about a nine millimeter and a this and a that and a and 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 I wanted it about no, I wanted a guy that he likes his rum, he loves his daughter, and it's a it's it's almost like it's it's well. I, I should explain, Hans Larsen, my protagonist, is a former Navy SEAL because I wanted to obviously have that three degrees of separation or, or, or yeah. whatever. Um, and, yeah, so I, I wrote quite an honest character, quite a people-orientated character. All the dits in it are actually real, pretty much 75% is, is real stuff that's either happened to me or people that people that I know through the military or stories I've heard about. Yeah. about the SAS, say, down there in Sierra, Sierra Leone. Um, but it's a tough old audience to please out there sometimes. Well, as I say, you know, a lot of people will enjoy a book and won't write. It's a bit like, you know, you go, you go in hospital, the doctor cures you, and you go home. You don't think, oh, I'm going to go back and thank the doctor. But if a doctor cuts off the wrong leg, then you're really upset and you make a point of letting him know. Um, so a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff that you get as feedback... Um, you know, it's, it's going to be the people that aren't happy rather than the people that are. Um, but the book sales tell the story, don't they? <laughs> they really do. They do. And also your your overall rating. So you've got your five stars and they normally, your fifth star is sort of graded down depending on whether you're a 4.3 or a 4.5. <laughs> or I think, I think my first novel slipped down to a 3.75 or something. Ah. But the second one, I nailed it. I really, I just you know in yourself when you've nailed something, and it was just good. It was a really, yeah. it's a really good follow up. It's it's actually a series. Um, I think as an author, you have to be able to say it's really good and blow your own trumpet because if you can't tell a book's good, <coughs> you're going to struggle yeah. to write good books. You you've got yeah. you've got to feel it's intrinsic. You feel when it's good, right? Yeah, unless you've got a marketing company, nobody's going to blow your trumpet for you. You've got to go out there every day and, and, and put something out there. And, and um, you know, that somebody's going to have a look. Somebody's going to read it. Somebody's going to hear about it. Um, and, you know, it's not, I find, you know, you can, I can sit down and write a, write a, a short story or uh, write an anthology of short stories. Um, and, you know, that's not difficult. I tell you what's always difficult is the marketing. That's the hard work. It really is. Yeah, and it probably would surprise people to know, Robin, wouldn't it, that even the big companies don't really do any marketing for you. Nope. In fact, what, what they actually do is they will take on, say, 2,000 books a year 
but they know five or ten of those books are going to make the company its huge profits. You know, these are kind of your, yeah. you know, your best sellers. And the other ones, they, it's just part of the trade. They, they almost let them die. They, you know, you never know which, you never know which one is going to flick up. You know, a bit like J.K. Rowling or whatever, and just make millions, yeah, yeah, millions upon millions for the publisher. And they know they obviously don't tell the authors that the rest of them are just going to die. It's a sad part of the uh, industry, hey. There's um, there's a question up here, Chris. It says about um, uh, have defence cuts affected the special forces in terms of recruitment? Uh, should we have a look at that? Yes, First Robin. One. Can I just jump in? There's one thing I needed to say. And that is a massive thank you to Brooke Benson. Brooke's there taking charge of our chat tonight. Brooke, lovely dear man. Um, he's helped me out no end on the channel. And today he spent two hours going through all the technology we're using now. We had, we had about six computers on in total. And he was very patient with me. And we went through every single part of this. Um, there's like three software systems running at the minute and Brooke much love to you mate thank you so much um if it wasn't for people like Brooke wouldn't wouldn't be as um <laughs> doing as well as we are now so yes Robin o over to you yeah as I say again the question was um have defense cuts affected special forces and I'm sure that they have I mean when um when I served with the British Armed Forces um there were 150,000 men in the British Army, uh, you know, not the Navy, not the, the Air Force, just the British Army. And now we're down to somewhere in the region of 75,000 and um, they're talking about cutting it even further. But when you've got 150,000 as a seed pool to, to, to fill a special forces unit of 250 men, then, you know, you, you, you can be extraordinarily selective. When you cut that by two thirds, you know, you've got a much smaller seed pool, so it's much harder to to actually find the people that um, will meet the specifications to get in there. So I think it has changed a lot. It's also changed a lot because special forces, by the very fact that it exists, means small. As soon as it becomes big, it's no longer special. That's a simple fact of life. And um, when I was in the SAS between, when was it, 78 and 84, um, there were 250 badge soldiers and about another 250 to 300 support on. Now there's still about 250 badge soldiers with about 2,000 support on. So that's changed a great deal. And the government are saying, oh, we're putting money into special forces. We're putting money into special forces. But then they're taking it away from the standard Green Army. They're cutting back the infantry. They're cutting back the artillery. They're cutting back the armoured units. And so consequently, um, they're not helping special forces at all. It's just a, a publicity stunt um, to because people think they know something about special forces. And if they're putting money into it, that's great. But it's not. It's much better to put it into the Green Army that special forces are selected from. Um, so I think it has. Um, I don't think the people are uh, any worse or better. I think the selection process is very, very similar, and the demands are just as high. But um, it's much, much harder to maintain those numbers because um, because the army in general, the armed forces in general, are getting smaller. What do we think, Robin, about the, uh, was it the snowflake 
recruiting um, advertising campaign. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they put it out to these modern marketing companies and they get it all wrong because they don't understand the mind of a young man who wants to be a soldier. A young man wants to be a soldier. His primary concern is not pay. His primary concern is to be a tough guy, be a soldier, have adventures, travel around the world, maybe learn skills, maybe get an engine, maybe um, get a get a, a skill as an engineer or a medic or um, whatever it is. But he's not looking at oh, you know, I'm I'm more likely to join if I get an extra tw- twenty quid a week. He's looking for that. He's looking to fill his youth up with fun and adventure and mates. And uh, if he has to go to war, then that's part of the job. Um, when you you go out there and you start um, saying to people, oh, it's all right to cry and it's all right to be upset and it's all right and, and we're going to look after you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just goes good. For me, it's just if the people you are going to get from that advertising are not going to make decent soldiers. That's my opinion and I stand by it firmly. You want soldiers. Soldiers aren't nice people always. They're, some of them, and you will have had this experience as well, some of them are really nasty, mean, horrible individuals. But they make bloody good soldiers when there's a fight on. What do you want in a in a fight? Do you want you want somebody to wave the yellow card and say, sorry, chaps, you're shouting too loud? Or do you want somebody who's going to get his gun out and start shooting the enemy? It's, um, it's a nasty business, and it needs some pretty nasty people to do it. And They got it completely wrong, and they still don't have it right Yes. Uh, let's have a look at some more questions. Um, guys, can we stay away from the personal questions or, or commenting on other, you know, other service personnel? Because it's just, it's not really what my channel's about. And, 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 and I know Robin's a gentleman, so it won't be what he's about. Um, did you ever serve with Dinger? The Dinger as, as in was in Bravo 2-0. Um, well, everybody in the uh, everybody in the armed forces uh, whose surname was Bell was given the nickname Dinger, just like everybody called Murphy was called Spud. So I knew some guys whose surnames were Bell, um, but I don't know if the 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 Bell that I knew in the SAS was the same one as was on Bravo Two Zero. So um, you know, no is essentially the short answer to the question. Okay, quick question for me from David Baker. Hello, David. And sorry, that last question was from Danny Young. Thank you, Danny. Uh, David says, Chris, what do you see for the future of Hong Kong? I I see Hong Kong is controlled by the same sociopaths that control the planet. So it's not, unless, unless we stand up and stand firm and start getting united against uh, uh, what I call all this nonsense, then planet's going well the planet will keep spinning but humanity's not 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 really going anywhere david sorry if i sound a bit um pessimistic i'm i'm more trying to like wake people up that's Um, an interesting interesting question in many ways because um i understand i understand his frustrations about hong kong but we handed over control of hong kong uh something like 25 years ago now and i remember it and um you know essentially Britain is no longer a world power. It's still a world economy, but it's not a world power. We don't have armed forces. We don't have uh, international naval power. um, And we rely on our alliances with the USA, with Canada, with Europe and Australia and New Zealand and other places in the world to have any kind of 
influence at all. So as far as Hong Kong's concerned, you know, yes, China is pushing the boundaries. It's pushing its boundaries in India, in Turkmenistan, and in, um, in Hong Kong, and in the South China Sea, uh, to see if the world will actually push back. And the world's in some, the Western liberal democracies of the world are in something of a crisis because there's been a lack of leadership over the last three and a half years. And consequently, nobody, they're not united. So they, the China, China will push the boundaries, as Russia will. Um, if we get that kind of leadership back in the near future, then I think that we will, um, that we'll be able to push back and um, pressure um, the uh, Chinese Republic and Russia and put them back in their, their safe box and spread uh, the decency that comes from our particular uh, systems. Um, so, we're, but we're not a world power anymore. We don't have a we don't have a big say. We don't have a big drum to beat. Um, those years are over. We need our alliances. We need our friends around the world. We need NATO. We need the United Nations, and we need diplomacy. And we need we don't need people put in there because they're somebody's best friend who gave them a lot of money. Because diplomacy works if it's done properly. Yes. Uh... Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a typical bootleg, but it's not. I think I'm a typical man. I, I have trouble multitasking. <laughs> my, my girlfriend will tell you about that. It might sound like I'm being rude. It's just I can't. I have trouble reading questions and listening to my guests at the same time. I will get better. Um, so let's go right back up to the top. Thanks for hosting this, Chris. This is from Rob Time. Hi, Rob. My question is how... Oh, we've done that one, haven't we? The, the, def the yeah. defence cuts. Um, I'm not going to take the one on Northern Ireland, um, Rob, because I think we we covered that in our podcast. Um, we did talk a lot about Northern Ireland, yeah. Yeah, we do. And uh, to be honest, it, it, it's not not that I shy away from, you know, saying what, what I feel, because what I say, what I ever say is only aimed towards peace anyway. So I'm never going to feel guilty about that. But... What I will say about as soon as you mention Northern Ireland, you can't even call it Ireland or Nor it whatever way you try and phrase things, you get someone who gets really upset with you. And uh, well, it's a quagmire of politics. You do the same if you talk about Israel. You yes. get exactly the same response. Um, somebody will pounce on a word or a mispronunciation or something, but you know that's why we're here. We'll make mistakes, and uh, people will be free to correct. Robin, was there any specific kind of watch issue to you in the SCS? We had um, oh, we we had a period where our SBS were issued uh, Rolexes. <laughs> um, I think that's where the question might be coming from. This is from Joe, by the way. Joe plays twenty two. Um, was there a special watch for the siege or for the Falklands? I'm guessing the last bit is a bit a bit irrelevant, but I think I've lost you for a moment. Oh. Can you hear me now? Bear with us. You're back now. Yeah, yeah I, you had a question about watches we Yeah, wearing. did you have any kind of James Bond-type yeah. gizmo? We didn't, have a, we didn't have a James Bond watch, but it was the first time in the Army when I went there that I was actually issued with a watch. And it was a standard Army, it was a standard army issue that uh, was issued to Special Forces. Um, blackface, uh, luminous dials, I don't remember the name of it, uh, webbing strap for the wrist, and... Um, yeah, we were, we were. I mean, I was, what was I? I was 21. And it was, uh, we were quite chuffed with them. 
I understand they're in great demand these days, which yes. I kept it. <laughs> yeah, we had a we just used to call it a pusser's watch in the military. You could yep. go you could go to the store and draw draw one out, you know, that had a grey grey sort That's of khaki strap on it. And, um if I'll tell you a very quick story, everybody. <laughs> when I was in training, uh, uh, um, we were up on, Lim on Woodbury Common on Limpstone. We were doing our field craft phase, so we were all camouflaged out. And we are doing a lot of night navixes, so navigating at night. And um, as anyone who's been in the, in the military will tell you, your training team is always, they're always about, they're always watching, right? We came back on the last leg of this night navix, I don't know, like a three mile leg back to, to, our, to our harbour position. And um, as we came down this track, I looked, I glanced in the gorse bush and I saw the luminous dial of a, of a pusser's watch. <laughs> you couldn't miss it. It was, it was almost as if someone was shining a green torch out of the bush. Yeah. And uh, I thought, should I say, good evening, Corporal? <laughs> but I didn't have the balls. So I just, I just, uh, just, I just carried it. <laughs> just carried I, it. I remember Woodbury Common with... Um... The gorse, gorse bushes out, out there, and uh, you know, uh, it, it's something special about the gorse bushes out there on the common. It, you've got you've got a lot of a lot of spikes in you. Uh, they ulcerated. So when I was on the sniper course down there with the Royal Marines, um, you know, you had to have um, orthopedic felt down the inside of your ghillie suits to stop you uh, ending up with what was called Woodbury Common rash. Yeah, that was horrible, wasn't it? It was yeah. kind of like this poisonous infection. Yeah. And there was talk that at one time they used to hold, they used to test uh, chemical chemical weapons up there. Um, in fact, they had a few strange buildings. They used to, <laughs> they had a name for them. I can't remember now. Um, if anyone in the chat knows, please write it down. They had this, like something houses or something. Um, well, they reckon they used to test all kind of hideous chemicals up there and that this had got into the ground. Hence why when you got scratched by this stuff, um, it could come up nasty, but it probably was just an infection, to be honest. It was worse because, I mean, you used to have gauze bushes all over the UK, still do. Um, but that was the only place that you got that rash. So it may well have been those chemicals. Yeah. Can you tell us about the snipers course? Because it's... Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Um I got uh, got back from the Falklands and thought, and my wife had just had our first son, Alex. Um, he was 10 days old when I got home. And I thought, great, I'm going to have some time with my new baby and uh, spend some time with my wife and uh, things are going to be cool. And then, and then so they sent me on the Royal Marine Sniper course down at Lynchton instead. And um, it was the most amazing um, soldiers course I ever did. Um, it was field craft to the ultimate degree and there was no margin for error you either got i think it was 65 percent of everything to get a pass as a sniper and 75 percent of everything to get a pass as a marksman sniper and if you were a quarter point down on any subject below 65 percent you failed that was it and uh, I, I think it was a 12-week course um, and my wife got ill halfway through, um, and so I had to go home for a week, take a week off the course, and then come back and catch up. Um, but I caught up, and um, and I, I did pass with my with sniper marks, um, uh, one of only two that passed with sniper marksmen, and um, I was extraordinarily proud of that. Uh, so proud of it, in fact, that I went out 
with the booties at the end of the course down into Limston. And it was the only time in my life I ever did a Zulu warrior uh, <laughs> in the pub, uh, stark naked, uh, dancing around the pub. The only time in my life I was that jump. It was such a hard course, um, such a skillful course with such great guys. There were only two SAS guys on it. The rest were SB and Royal Marines. And, uh, you know, they were brilliant guys to work with. Um, um, I came away I came away from it. I had friends who had been in the Royal Marines. One of my best friends during selections, a guy called Keith Ball, who's um, still a friend today, uh, who um, did, did and passed selection with me. Um, one of my best corporals, a guy called Neil Gibson, who's quite famous in the Royal Marines. Um, but to work with them uh, in, in that environment uh, gave me a huge amount of respect for them. Uh, they're terrific guys, terrific soldiers, and got on really well with them especially for a paratrooper. <laughs> yeah, it, the field craft element is really important, isn't it, for a sniper? The, yeah. the, the, obviously, the camouflage and concealment. There was a story when I was in, this, and this is not like sour grapes or one regiment picking <laughs> on another, but they did say they had a trooper rock up one day for the course, and he failed it. So He, he did all right, and he got all his snipes in and everything, but... They, I think they failed him because he was reluctant to to camouflage out fully. Um, <laughs> really? I'm not saying I'm not saying it's true at all. It, it was just um, I'm just saying it really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the, the skills there are um, camouflage and concealment, judging distance, um, observation. That was the toughest one. Observation. They'll take tiny little piece, pieces of Russian equipment stick it out there, anything between 50 and 200 metres away, and you get a pair of binoculars, and you have to identify exactly what it is. Um, you know, you can't just say, oh, there's a rifle magazine out there. You have to say it's a rifle magazine that belongs to this specific weapon and carries this type of ammunition. Um, that, was, that, was, that, was one of the, that was one of the hardest tests for me personally. Then you have stalking. Then you have um, map reading. You have to do everything down to um, four digits rather than three. And so you judge, you're basically doing your map reading down to a distance of 10 meters. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's so much to it over such a, a protracted period of time. And it really improves you as an individual, as a, as a soldier. Um, but it's the best. And the Royal Marines have run that course since the First World War and never let it go. And they should never let it go. Yes. Well said. Um, I, see, I saw a question here, Robin. Can I just apologise, guys? I've just realised the cursor is going all over, the mouse is going all over the thing, and I know it annoys some people. I think there's a way I can turn that off, but I don't want to go and try and do it now because, um, yeah, let's just say it could be Endex. So, so just, <laughs> yeah. I'll try and keep it at the edge of the screen. It works, don't fix it. <laughs> yes. There's a question here, and I absolutely love it. David Baker, well done, mate. He says, hello, guys. What's worse, physical pain or mental pain? Oh, right. well, I think they're, I, I think they're both uh, equal in different, in different ways. Um, when you're undergoing physical pain, um, you have to deal with that. When you're undergoing mental pain, you have to deal with that uh, as well. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the great skills that you learn as a soldier is endurance. Uh, and also uh, self-reliant. So when, when things are going wrong mentally, um, that's because you're not calm enough. Your imagination's running wild. Um, fear is actually an anticipation of something bad that might happen in the future. 
So, you know, if you accept that, you control it. Um, mental abuse is a different thing altogether if, if you can't escape from um, learning how to stand up for yourself, how to fight back, how to articulate well. Um, these are all defenses against um, a mental assault. But a physical assault, you make yourself stronger, you make yourself fitter, or you run away from it. Yes. The other thing is uh, it all rolls into one, Robin, doesn't it? When you're absolutely on an endurance challenge and you, you just, you, everything is in pain. It's just everything is in pain. And, and it's that... Yeah. That's, that's... There was one thing in um, there's one thing in fighting scared where I'm on selection and it's the winter and we're coming to the end of a 27 kilometer 27 mile march with 50 pounds on your back and you're going up the back of Penavan which is the highest mountain in the Brecon Beacons in the dark and I'm absolutely on my chin straps there's about six inches of snow on the ground as well and as I'm going up from Critic which is the mountain just before it um, I start to count my steps so i count them to 50 and by the time i'm about 50 meters from the top i'm counting my steps in fives so i'm doing five steps pause now i'll do another five five steps pause and that was my challenge give myself 50 steps when i get to 50 i'll stop and have a rest and now i got down to five and i finally got over the top um that was one little um way of keeping going even if it was i'm going to do one more step i'm going to do now i'm going to rest now I'm going to do one more step. Um, that's 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 real endurance, keeping going, uh, ignoring the pain in your body. Your body can do amazing things um, if if you just feed it fuel. And one of the biggest problems people have with endurance, they don't eat enough. If you're ever on any kind of super marathon, super test, anything really physical, stop worrying about your waistline and start filling your belly. Now that's what really works. Well said. We've got Lewis in, in the chat. Lewis, hello, mate. Um, I believe Lewis Hardeman, I believe it was Lewis, has emailed me to say, Chris, I want to do a, a charity challenge to for, for a veterans charity. How do I go about it? I think, Lewis, I mailed you back. It's really simple, mate. You start a Just Giving page or whatever and get your nice little banner photo. You start a Facebook group so that people in the group can add other people to the group you set, you decide what challenge, then you go and smash it. It's, it really is that simple. And you don't take any prisoners, um, and you, you don't stop, and you just do it. Um, yep, I did that. I did that just recently. I've been raising some money on a GoFundMe page for. Um, uh, it's called the Northern Ireland uh, Veterans Campaign Fund, and uh, we're we're putting. Like I said we're we're getting together for next year, so we're putting some funds together so that we can cover our expenses for meetings, getting around the country, doing some marketing and promotions for uh, the organization to get it ready to go next year. Um, the links will be up, I'm sure, at the end. And, um, you know, but it is very, very simple to do. Just go fund me, uh, put that into uh, Google and it, the page will come up and the instructions are dead easy to run. Contact the charity you're working for first. That'll help. Yes. I think a lot of these things, um, there's a time, guys, you've just got to stop asking other people stuff and just crack on and, and believe in yourself. Um, yeah, I, get, I get asked an awful lot through things like Instagram. Well, Chris, I want to join the Marines. What what should I do? I'll just say, go and smash it. Well, first of all, find out from the recruiting office what, what they're going to want you to do because that three-day PRC or PRMC, as they call it now, it's a set criteria. It's like 50 push-ups, 
you know, mile and a half run in, in under 10 minutes or something, or it might be 12. Um, you've got to be able to swim. Um, and that's it. And, and that's it. You just got to make sure you're fit enough to do it. If I wouldn't want to turn up there if I wasn't fit enough, but then I did because <laughs> I did about four, four mile runs before I joined the Marines. And it's probably why I struggled, struggled so much. Um, One of the um, things that always, um, bugs me about um, modern-day recruitment, which we've already mentioned, is that they never make it absolutely clear to people who want to join the armed forces that um, part of their job is to get shot at and killed, you know? Um, and I think they should um, make people more aware of that because although it doesn't happen to a huge number, a huge percentage of us, you know, um, you know that is part of the job. And it's, it's quite shocking when people come along and say, nobody told me that uh, I was going to be doing this when you end up in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Falklands and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Nobody told me I was going to be doing this. Well, you know, that's maybe they should make it a little clearer that being a soldier is about not just about shooting other people, about getting shot yourself. Yes, exactly. And then when the rounds do come down, that's a whole nother thing again, because let's be honest, that's the first, you, you can't practice that in training, can you? No. The, especially the big ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, gosh. Um, I got um, got hit by a Katusha rocket when I was in Mozambique uh, working as a mercenary. And um, after, um, um, they're, they're very, very big, powerful rockets, big artillery. Um, the biggest artillery we had over there, actually. Um, but after the, um, after the attack was over, um, we discovered that they were our own Katushas because the enemy didn't have them. So we'd been fired on by our, by our own Katusha rockets. Um, not, a, not a great experience. It's funny, your eyes get much, much bigger and your ass gets much, much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever meet Kate Adie then, Robin? Was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I met Kate Adie. I've got some photographs of me. Uh, we did a Radio 4 um, programme on one of the anniversaries of the Iranian embassy scene. And uh, she's a very dynamic, um, forceful lady. Uh, very easy to get on with, but you do have to cut in if you want to get a word in. <laughs> it really made her career, didn't it? The embassy siege. I, I, I remember she was kind of, I mean, she did a really good job. And that that was the springboard then that she became the go-to girl for any kind of uh, conflict abroad and stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, you know, it's taking those moments and those opportunities. And we'll all get moments in our life. One of the things a lot of young people ask me, you know, for, for, in terms of advice for the future. And I say, always volunteer, which goes against the military doctrine of never volunteer. Always volunteer for everything. Every time you get an opportunity, take it. Don't wait for somebody else to do it first because you miss your chance. If you, if you have a photograph, get in the front line. If you're in a class and somebody's teaching, get at the front of the class. You know, if you're ever given an opportunity to go on a course, which is being paid for by your company or by somebody else, Take it. Doesn't matter what it is. Take it because that's free information. That's free power for, for your future. Um, always, always volunteer. Yeah. yeah. Always volunteer and always sign your name bigger than everybody else. Mister <laughs> <laughs> Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one here about SS books. We'll make this a quickie because I'm, I'm, I think we've done the book thing. But do do you think that SAS type books have lost? of their mistakes i'm guessing you know lost a lot of their mis mistake 
And of course, it's worth pointing out here, you've got the SES type fiction, which is quite popular now, or, or the, the kind of, you know, ex-SAS guy turned special agent. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got a, a lot of classic books, um, several on my shelf. Best one I read recently was uh, a, a, a biography, not, not a, an autobiography, but a biography of, um, oh, memory block, uh, founder, one of the founding fathers of the SES, the big tough guy that drank a lot. Paddy Maine. Paddy Maine, of course. Sorry to uh, any, anyone related to Paddy. Um, that's not me. That I'm not that forgetful. It's just I've lost a few brain cells over the years. But yes, what a character and uh, died in a car crash. Yeah, yeah. I knew people that served with him when I was in. They were the old boys when I was a young boy and served with him. Um, they, had some, they had some stories to tell as well. But think about books, get back to the question. Um, yeah, they, they have lost their mystique because there's, you know, like anything, you get too many of them. Um, they all start to follow the same trend, the same path, the big tough hard guy that's fearless who, you know, uh, chews bricks for breakfast and jumps buildings with a tool, you know, and faster than a speeding bullet. You know, it's, um, um, and people, I think people just get fed up with that kind of stuff um, after a while. It does lose its mystique. And it should do as well, um, but you know there there are other there's other stuff out there by um, armed forces guys that delves into different parts of life. It's not just you know like yourself, you wrote novels, and there's quite a lot of good writers out there who are ex-soldiers that write novels. There's people who investigate history. You uh, and Southby Taylor, who did Exocet Falklands, uh, ex-Royal Marine, fantastic book, you know, and it's really good because I'm in it. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's this one as well, Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper, which is essentially, you know, um, one of a trilogy, which I wrote, which um, somebody said to me, Robin, you can't sell poetry. So I said, oh, yes, I can. Anybody tells me I can't do something, I can. So um, I, I put some poetry into the book and then filled it up with short, short army stories, true stories, and, so, and a lot of little maxims of wisdom. So Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper. So there are other things you can do. It doesn't all have to be the hard man stuff, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, sorry, I'm just looking at my shelf here because, uh, as I say, my memory's not not great. But the second and probably the second and third SAS book I read, and we're talking 10, 15 years ago now, um, one of them was the, um, gosh, you had Bravo 2-0 as a call sign, obviously, um, but there was another one. The written. one that got away? No, it was another one that had a call sign. It will be down here. I just don't want to look, leave you guys and go and look for it. But um, in a nutshell, it was written by a chap who was very honest at the end when he talked about how when the PTSD caught up with him after the Gulf War and, um, and uh, or, you know, he was faced extreme challenges for a while. Um, he had a nickname. Uh, it, it will come to me. And the other one, which was incredibly sad, or it, it wasn't sad reading the book, but it was sad that recently I learned that he'd taken his own life. It was Tom Reed, and it's the book's called... Oh, that's Nish Bruce, yeah. Yeah. I knew since I was 18. Yeah, he, he, but Nish had uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and um, he was on lithium, and he hated being on lithium because he said, I, you know, I'm not mad when I'm on lithium, but I'm not myself. When I'm on lithium, when I'm off the lithium, at least... At least I'm a sane human being. 
and I am myself, even though I try to stab people with scissors to work the devils, you know. Mm. Um, but he was a wonderful, wonderful friend, a wonderful human being, um, <laughs> a, a legend amongst legends, if you like. Um, but his name, his real name was Charles Bruce Nish. Yeah. Um, I was in the paras with him from 18 and the SAS with him till we, we left. We were bodyguards together for a while and then he got ill. And um, that was a real tragedy and that he, that he left us. My wife used to counsel him, you know, so he, was, uh, he used to come around for a chat and uh, discuss, his, discuss his madness. And is it, um, I feel a bit sensitive talking about it, but is it true he jumped out of an aeroplane? Yeah, he wrote that in um, in Freefall because he, he he was a Freefall expert. One of the he was in the Red Devils Freefall team for a while. Uh, he became uh, one of the world's top Freefallers. There's a wonderful photograph of him Freefalling naked with three naked women over um, over Los Angeles, I think it was. Um, but um, what was the question again? <laughs> um, that when he took his own life, he was travelling yeah. back from France in a yeah, light aircraft. He was flying his own aircraft, and he had a he had a, 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 a co-pilot that he'd been training for a long time. But in his book, he says, "When I choose to die, I'm going to die by jumping out of an aeroplane without a parachute." So um, he um, uh, he they were coming back from Greenland over the UK, and uh, they got some ice on the wings, and uh, so he took control of the aircraft and um, uh, got the ice off the wings and got it at a level where it was fine again. And then he looked at his co-pilot, who was a woman, and said, are you okay now? And she said, yeah, I've got it now. He said, okay. And then he stepped out of the aircraft. Um, and he was over uh, Northampton. And his body was found in a field. Um, but that's how he said he was going to kill himself in his book. Uh, freefall was a play on words because um, it was about freefall, him being a freefall parachutist. But it was also about his freefall into insanity. Um, that was it. That was his play on words. He's a very deep and highly intelligent man. He was six one, six two, uh, amazing blue eyes, um, super fit, great soldier. Um, everybody who knew him really loved him. Yeah. Gosh. Well, brave way to go. I mean, if you if you're gonna check out and yes, I mean it does get must get to a point in your life where if you are that on. Um, <sighs> God, it's, it's a dodgy thing to even talk about, but... What a funny story about that. Um, he, was in, he was in Switzerland, and um, he uh, thought his girlfriend um, was um, the devil, and he tried, to, he tried to kill her with a pair of scissors. So he got arrested and put into a um, psychiatric hospital, secure one, in Switzerland. And so some of his friends got a private jet and flew across, broke him out of the... Broke him out of the um, psychiatric ward put him on the private jet and flew him back to the uk <laughs> you know <laughs> that would make another good book yes <laughs> what um what shenanigans have the sas got up to after they've left then robin because i'm in touch with a chap he left the marines he i think he was sbs and of course because of all their boat skills they made ideal candidates for like cross-channel drug smuggling. And they, they got involved in all that, um, you know, fast dinghies and ships coming in from blooming foreign ports and offloading, I don't know if it's what 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 what, what drugs it, it was. I guess that's not important, but he's got one hell of a... I want to get him on the podcast, actually. He's got one hell of a story to tell, but 
that kind of fast buck stroke adventure lifestyle is really appealing, isn't it? To, it can be. I mean, but it's not. I don't think I, mean, I suppose I speak for myself in this regard. But when I uh, when I bought myself out of the army in '84, um, I, I had a family, I had a mortgage, I needed to earn a living, and my skills, apart from being a paramedic, were those of being a soldier. And um, so I immediately went out on the bodyguarding market. And everybody imagines it's like the movies being a bodyguard, but it's not. Um, deter, detect, react are the three three main priorities of a bodyguard. You deter something by being visible and preventing it happening. You d detect it before it happens. And then if you have to react to it, it's because the first to have failed. So if you're doing a damn good job, nothing happens to your client. There's never a danger. It's never allowed to happen because of your excellent planning and administration and skills. Um, the catch-22 of that is that because nothing happens, the client thinks he doesn't need you. <laughs> so then he reduces the level of his the skill level of his people uh, and the money that he has to spend down to a point where something does happen. Um, and so, you know, you end up with um, a problem only when you reduce the quality of your people. Um, if you look at the skills, skill factors of people like in Secret Service in the USA, because it's their full-time job to protect the president and his staff. Um, they never worry about that kind of thing. But in the private sector, you're always worried about uh, losing your job and pleasing your boss. And you might say to your boss, okay, um, sir, I don't think it's advisable to go into this area tonight. It's dangerous. We've been told this. But if he says, well, we're going anyway, you have to go. Um, you don't get control. Uh, if he says, you say, oh, look, I need six people. He says, well, Robin, I'm only taking you. You have to go, um, and that, I mean, I was, I was the bodyguard to Rafi Kariri, who's been in the news again recently because of what's been going on in Lebanon, and uh, he was blown up and murdered by um, people believed the Syrian special Syrian secret service uh, with a suicide bomb um, about uh, 20 years ago now, um, some time back, and I worked for him for two years um, when he was running to become prime minister. It was a genuine threat on him at all times but um you know bodyguards cost a lot of money and um you know you have to look after him his kids his family and there's only 12 of you and and some of you are on on leave as well so it's a it's it's not never it's never like the movies nothing is ever like the movies if it was the movies would be really boring yeah we were lucky we had uh, jack english on the podcast he's a former bootneck and he's He's bodyguarded some of the Hollywood celebs like um, yeah. Paris Hilton and Elton John and yeah. these sort of names. And I think he said, you know, one of your skills is you kind of you got to be like a care worker, social worker, um, you know, sign the autographs, all, 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 all these things that we probably don't don't imagine. Um, something I learned doing that job was um, not to get sucked into um, pleasing the boss um, because in a lot of uh, societies around the world, once you go and get a hamburger, you're a hamburger getter. And once you empty the bins, you're a bin emptier. So if there's anybody out there who's going to be a bodyguard in the, you know, in the Middle East or um, to somebody important, on your first day, say, I don't do that, sir. I don't do that, sir. I'm here to protect you. I don't carry bags, sir. That's what I do on day one. Because if you don't establish that on day one, you end up being the bag carrier. They get the hamburger getter, the dog's body. Um, you see it with all sorts of people. The, the word is no. 
but you're frightened of losing your job. But you'll actually keep the job for longer that way. Yeah, that sounds like a scene in a sort of film, doesn't it? Uh. <laughs> Oi, pick it up yourself. <laughs> well, not so much that, but, you know, I mean, I did have one occasion where somebody said, uh, Robin, I, 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 want, um, I want a bottle of wine. So I, I picked up the phone and said, Mr. So-and-so wants a bottle of wine. I didn't go and get it. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. Mm. You know, oh, uh, get, you know, my bags are in the car. And I'll walk to the hotel door and I say, get Mr. So-and-so's bag. <laughs> um, that's the difference. Knowing what your job is and sticking to it specifically and having the um, confidence to say, no, I don't do that. No, I don't clean the, I don't clean up the dog shit. Yeah, that's the that's reason a lot of uh, Marines get kind of, um, what's the word, not disenfranchised, uh, disillusioned. Mm. Is you're there, you're this big, rough, tough commando that's, past the the commander course and got your green berry and and then you get told to shift furniture or right fellas we've got this job that someone wants us to do and you're like really um not to mention a lot of the waiting around which is another thing uh, synonymous with bodyguarding yeah right uh a couple of things here what have we got um sean gowland just a quick one uh any tips for writing your first book Yes, get on Amazon and get my free, completely free, how to write a memoir. I put everything in there, in short, about how to get in, get it cracked, um, and get published. Well, I would say, um, first thing is you've got to be able to write. And when I mean write, I mean to just sit down and um, put your fingers on a keyboard or your pen to paper and do it. You know, how do you get to become a runner? Go out and run. How do you become a writer? Write some really, really bad stuff every single day. And every day it gets a little bit better, you know? And when you when you do decide to write something that's about you, put the feeling into it, put the emotion into it, put the color, put the... It's no good saying, I went from A to B. It's not a military report. It's a story. And people want to feel your feelings. People want to see what you, you saw on the day. You know, they saw the sun shining through the window. You could smell the bacon in the kitchen. You know, your mother walked across the room. She was wearing a, an apron with, where she wiped her hands on. Um, you know, um, how you felt. Um, you know, I was welling up inside, but I controlled it. You know, those are, those are things that make a story. But, you know, if you want to be good at something, do lots of it. That's what, that's what the real scene is. Yes, exactly. I call that put, put the reader in the scene or put him in your shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't know, this, I was reading Hemingway uh, last week, and one of the things Hemingway said is, you have to know everything in the picture, but your reader doesn't. Because as long as you do, and you're creating a scene, they'll figure it out later on. You don't have to reveal everything at once, and you don't have to explain too much. Um, another mistake people make is superfluous adjectives. So they do too much describing. You know, the classic is, it was a dark, wet, drizzly stormy night you know and that the moon was you know it's too many adjectives it was a dark wet night that'll do it <laughs> yeah or it was a miserable night yeah yes it's it's interesting isn't it how as a as as an author you 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 have you have to get you have you have to reach a certain point of of in uh, you can call it enlightenment in your in writing you have to see what needs to be done and it's yeah. a sense. And when you start, you, I, I didn't have it at the start, 
but I spoke to a few authors and they looked at my work, about three of them, and a couple of them came back and they gave, one of them said, par it down. And I thought, I thought he meant edit like my story out. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. And then when I listened, when I understood what he meant, he meant par it. Ah, so instead of like the supercharged, streamlined, um, sleek black Mercedes, you just yeah. say the fast sports car, you know, the, yeah, the, you know, the speedy yeah. Mercedes, you know, or, or something like this. And Let people's imagination fill in the rest. Yes. Now, Ernest Hemingway also said that um, uh, never show another writer your, your work. Because if it's good, they'll hate it. <laughs> you know, if it's bad, they'll hate it. But if it's good, they'll hate it even more. Um, so, you know, let your wife read your stuff. The first stuff I wrote, my wife read it, and she came back to me and she said, "This is shit." <laughs> she said, "Where's the color? Where's the emotion? Where's the life?" You know, this is a military report, and um, and uh, so she was. Um, you know, that's what you need. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just to thank you, Danny Young says, Chris, you're a total inspiration. I know, mate. <laughs> no. <Well>, us <that's> too. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, I get such, told such kind things since I've been um, doing this podcast. And I really appreciate it, guys. I genuinely do. Uh, makes up for all the other stuff I have to hear. <laughs> oh, I'm joking. I'm joking. So, um, dun, 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 dun. Uh, right, come on. Um, dun, dun, dun. Bum, 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 bum. Sorry, guys. I'm just. I said put the questions in um, capitals. It just makes it easier to see. Uh, there's one here from Sam. What's the most unbelievable thing you've heard happen that you know is true? Uh, so I'll tell you that one. I was uh, bodyguarding Rafiq Hariri, and um, we were we were taking money into um, huge sums of money into Beirut to pay off Hezbollah, who were holding the um, holding French citizens hostages. And um, uh, we uh, we carried millions of dollars in there, in cash, that went to um, the man in charge of the Druze militia called Wale Jumbla. And uh, this money was coming from the city of Paris, not the French government. And uh, Jacques Chirac was the mayor of Paris at the time. So he was taking money from Paris to buy the release of these hostages. And he was making a run for the presidency at the same time. So eventually Hezbollah said, yeah, we've got the money and we will release the hostages. And then we had to carry the message back saying, no, don't release them yet because Mr. Chirac isn't making his run for the presidency for another four weeks. So we want you to hold them for another four weeks, which they did. He didn't win that election, by the way. Yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. My strangest story, Robin, I, I couldn't ever tell anyone. It, it's... Yeah, it, it, I, I, no one's ever been able to verify. It's one of those military rumours that no one's actually ever been able to verify whether it's true or not. But it really wasn't um, one of the most horrific, horrible things I ever heard, to be honest. But um, I'll tell you a silly story I did. I, I went, in Hong Kong, I worked in a computer trading company, trading the memory chips, which were worth a fortune um, it's like like they they like floated on almost like on the stock exchange that the price of them would go up and down and what some of the buyers would do is they'd send a runner and they would hand carry let's say quarter of a million dollars worth of chips in a sports bag on the aeroplane so when they got through customs at the other end they didn't have to pay any tax on it right 
Yeah. So, so it wasn't an unusual thing to hand carry, right? One time we had two uh, clients come into the office, say one from, I don't know, say Taiwan, the other one from oh, Shenzhen or somewhere, right? And the second client didn't have time to wait around for his stock to come in from one of our suppliers. So he went for the airport and just 10 minutes after he left, the runner from the suppliers rocks up at our office and he's got this quarter of a million dollars worth of DRAM chips. And so the, the manager said, Chris, grab the bag, get to the airport, you know, get, get him before he goes through the gate. So I jumped on the MTR, the underground in Hong Kong, took it out to, it was Kai Tak back then. And I'm in the um, departure, uh, in the, not the departure, the bit before you go through the gates, obviously. And I saw the guy and I ran up to him and I said, sir, there's your chips. And he just looked at me and he said, but Chris, my, my chips aren't arriving until next week. Your boss, your boss told me that. He said, besides, I don't want to risk hand carrying them. And then Robin, it suddenly clicked. It was the wrong client. <laughs> it was the other guy. I just tried to give quarter of a million dollars worth of memory chips to the wrong person. All he had to say was, oh, thanks, Chris. <laughs> and there was, would have been nothing, nothing I could have done about it. And I probably wouldn't have even realised what, what, what the mistake was. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Robin, did you feel like a fish out of water at university? What were your interactions with the younger students like? That's from Sa Sam... Sam, thank you, Sam. Yeah, that was uh, that's that's uh, that's a story that I brought home every night to my wife. Um, I was doing English literature with creative writing, and consequently, um, it's uh, subjects that are very popular with young women rather than young men. So, on my course was about uh, twenty people, and eighteen were young women between the ages of like nineteen and twenty-two, twenty-three. Um, and a couple of lads. And that's uh, difficult because nobody wants to sit next to their grandpa at school. That's the first thing. It wasn't cool. I mean, you got put into a group to work together on a particular uh, job. That was fine. Uh, they would happily work with me. But it, I'm, I'm always early. So I would sit on the third row. Everybody would sit on the second and first. I sit on the front row. Everyone would sit on the second and third. You know, because it wasn't cool. And I had to be very careful if I coming come to the class at the same time not to sit next to the same person frequently because that would have been creepy <laughs> so um, being a grandfather even a great-grandfather now but I was a grandfather at the time you know you you know how to interact with young women to a degree and you know what bugs them so you you can't be 56 years old and trying to be 18 years old you have to you know you, you have to act your age um, but there was also this um, university indoctrination that tended to be going on with postmodernists. And the faculty was dominated by radical feminists as well, who, because they knew something about my background, um, and they immediately pigeonholed me into the right wing, homophobic, um, aggressive Nazi sort of sphere. Um, and it took them over two years to figure out that they were completely wrong um, because they'd already. They'd already packaged me away in that environment. Um, I was there to learn, and I, I learned a great deal. But um, I found a guy doing a master's um, called um, uh, Stephen Davids, 
and um, he was um, the same age as me. So I went out to play with him at, at lunchtime and uh, did my homework with him. Um, I got my dissertation in about two weeks early. Um, I, lo- I, I, I did come across some people at Surrey University who shouldn't have even been there because they couldn't spell. And so why are they doing the course, which uh, opened up my eyes a lot to the standard of general standard of a lot of people that go to university these days. Um, they're wasting their time and they're spending a lot of money and getting into debt, which doesn't do them any favors. Um, if you're academic, if you're gifted in a particular area, you know, choose a subject that's going to be useful for you. Go out there and, um, and get a degree. Um, but, um, you know, I was doing English, uh, English literature, and I was learning about people like Derrida, who is a French philosopher. I'm thinking it's supposed to be English. I would walk into a class about Geoffrey Chaucer and get lectured on female genital mutilation for the first five minutes by the professor in charge of the class. I'm thinking this is not English literature. So, you know, there's a there's an awful lot of indoctrination going on with young people. And if you want to know why the BBC is so strange and why uh, the military is trying to do all these peculiar things with recruitment, it's because it's been going on for a long time. And these people are now in positions of authority and power and in politics. You want to know why half the people in Parliament are completely nuts? and don't live in the same world as you, it's because they had this indoctrination at university 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, reality checks um, are something that they find very, very peculiar. Um, it was, it was. I couldn't fit in. I was a fish out of water, it was a good question. But I learned, a, I worked very hard at it, and I learned a great deal, so I value it. How old were you, Robin, at, at uni? I was 56 and I graduated when I was 59. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I was 37, I think. So I guess I was a bit younger than you. Um, my drinking partner was the youngest girl in the class. <laughs> and she was lovely. Absolutely brilliant musician called Jess. Hello, Jess, if, if you ever watch this. I doubt you'll be watching a SAS podcast, Jess. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I think I was just that right age to be quite... A possibly a good role model for some of the younger men as well and we'd, we'd all go out surfing and stuff and still friends to this day um but i completely agree with you on the on the brainwashing thing it's um that's yeah, an, a whole whole nother... i love i love being there because i was there for the pure joy of learning you know i wasn't there for because i wanted a job at the end of it so i was enjoying the journey while they were looking to the destination um so I did, I did get, and I, I went home every afternoon as well, because I was only 20 minutes from the university. I think an awful lot more students would benefit a lot more as well if they picked the university closest to home rather than one furthest away, save their parents an awful lot of money. Yes. Um, Robin, I'm going to ask you to do me a favour because I need to go and get something for Chris. Uh, Chris is in the chat under funked in the head. I hope that's not a I don't know what the word is. I didn't do English at uni, I'm afraid. I'm only an author. Um, But there's a question here, and this is going to upset the whole world. What is your opinion on the special boat service? I will be back. Okay, well, I'll answer that one while you're away, while you can't say anything. Well, you can't press the button and cut me out. Um, I worked with the SBS in Belize um, and um, 
again, you know, I, I, I don't have any uh, issues at all with SB guys. I mean, joining a special boat service was something you could do straight out of um, uh, when you when you passed out a marine depot. Um, they're specialists and they're terrific at what they do. Um, during my period, they were uh, amazing divers, canoeists, uh, amazing swimmers. They could get aboard ships at sea by climbing ropes, the most amazing arms. Um, um, and that's what their job was. And they were brilliant. And um, I remember being in Belize with uh, Bernie Shrosby, who won the uh, Ironman competition back in 19, about 1981, 82, when it was new. And uh, we were great pals. Uh, they taught me to dive. Um, and the first, the first dive I ever did was with the special boat service. And that was in Belize. We went out with a dive supervisor and they said, how deep's the water here? And he said, 45 feet. And so my first dive, I went over the edge, uh, followed the anchor chain down. No pool training, no pressure training, no fancy training, no nothing. Put the gear on, get in the water and dive down with the special boat service. And uh, we get to the bottom by the anchor and these guys come up over a ridgeline and start waving their hands at a guy called Bob who's swimming next to me. And he grabs me by the arm and starts to take me up. And I go, okay, he's in charge. I'll do whatever he says. And we get to 30 feet and we decompress. And then we get up to the surface. And it turns out that my first ever dive was 110 feet. And um, they, yeah, and they were next to me like glue for the rest of the day, absolutely petrified that I was going to get the bends and they were going to be in deep, deep doo-doo. But um, I was fine. But that was my first ever dive, um, 110 feet, <laughs> with the SBS. Good guys. <laughs> are they? Uh, are they all? They cracked up to be them, Robin? Are they? I don't know. What are they cracked up to be? I think they're the most amazing swimmers, canoeists, um, divers in the British Armed Forces. To be fair, um, and uh, that's 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 what they're good at. They're good at what they're supposed to be good at. The uh, Marine Mountain Arctic Warfare Carter. They're amazing at what they do. The, um, you know, the, um, the difference between SB and SAS is SAS tend to be um, jacks of all trade. So you're you're in the desert, you're in the Arctic, you're in the jungle, you're um, in all sorts of different, you're in the mountains. So you, you have skills in all these things. But um, uh, it, when you take a small unit and you specialize in one skill, they can probably say they're the best in the world at that industry, without a doubt. Yeah, and as I'm always saying, you know, we everybody in in the forces plays a role, and the person that stacks the blankets, it does he, it, it's just as an important job as the the guys at the the, the tip of the spear. You know, you're all uh, you're all dependent upon each other. Where where, where Robin does this kind of uh, fascination for young people with who 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 they see these rivalries that sometimes they're there the paras tend to have a real rivalry with the marines but it's a real one-way thing because you never hear you never hear the marines compare themselves or rate themselves against against anybody but oh yeah um, i've heard i've heard i've heard booties you know um throwing throwing a bit of flack at paras and paras like that but it's a it's a friendly love-hate relationship you know it's um, paras, paras know they're the best in the world, and Marines think they're the best in the world. That's the only difference, you know. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and you know that. But if you if you if you were to mix and match the two, you wouldn't know a lot of the difference. Except Marines are a little bit more mature. 
Oh, thank you. Kind sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that the I think it's this kind of boys' own thing that we grow up with, isn't it? From from war films, and now, of course, they've got they've got all the games, which is a whole other. There's a whole other psychology, uh, sociology going on there with respect to how that fits into the the global, um, you know, how it fits in holistically with what's going on in the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think it's as we said, isn't it? Everyone does a different job, and it's. I do. I couldn't imagine the SBS or the SBS comparing themselves against each other because, like, like, like you say, they're both extremely professional in their own field. Work well together. They work very well together. Everybody loves to think that there's a a, a real conflict there. there. There never has been. There never will be. Um, good soldiers respect good soldiers. Um, if you if you're not if you if you're wearing that berry though. And you don't come up to standard, then you're going to get you're going to get a lot of flack, and you'll deserve it because you shouldn't be wearing it if you can't come up to scratch. So, how would Rambo get on in the SAS, then, Robin? Would, would would he make the grade? I think if you go back to the 1960s, the US Green Berets were the best special forces in the world, um, and they were a very small unit of less than 500, and they were working in operational conditions uh, in uh, in Vietnam and other parts of the world. So. <clears throat> and highly skilled um, multitaskers, mostly with degrees. And uh, they were they were absolutely awesome. They were so good, though, that President Kennedy came along and said, I want 5,000 of these by the end of the year. And so they followed the president's orders. There were 5,000 at the end of the year, which turned them into an airborne brigade. Um, they stopped being special forces because they were too big again, too many of them. You know, um, Then they had to invent Delta and SEALs. Yeah, I think it all went wrong when they let let John Wayne in, wasn't it? Ah, it's a lot of, um, I mean, the peculiar thing about uh, publicity is John Wayne has uh, got statues about him around um, the world as an American hero. But he never actually, I mean, during the Second World War, he stayed in, he stayed in uh, California doing films, while most of the other movie stars like Jimmy Stewart volunteered and went to war and then came back again. Um, John Wayne never, never had a day in uniform, ever. I mean, John Wayne looked after John Wayne. He, he was um, good at what he did, but he was an actor. And there's a strange thing about people. They confuse actors with the real thing. You know, Robin Horsfall, I, did you know you look like Burt Reynolds? I say, yeah, Burt Reynolds is the actor. I'm the real thing. You know, that's the difference. Um, John Wayne was the actor. You take someone like Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart went and flew, the, uh, was it, uh, B-32s, um, he, he flew aircraft for 30 bombing missions over Germany before he went back to the USA. You know, there's a there's a man who's, you know, really seen it and done it, a genuine American hero, and uh, uh, and went back to making films afterwards. So, yeah, John Wayne, the Green Beret, the film. Um, yeah, he's put, he's portraying somebody else, but people get confused and they, they actually start to think that that actor is the real thing. Yeah. And to some the British people as well. Um, you get somebody in a in a television series about special forces, and the next thing they're a hard man or a hero, and they're not. They're an actor. That's what they are, and good for them. They earn more money than soldiers, <laughs> and they're better at acting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, we spent some time with the U.S. So uh, for, for our American brothers and sisters listening, I was a Royal Marine, so a British Marine, and we spent time in Sicily. 
So Italy with um, with our US Marine brothers. And I'll tell you what, just a great bunch of guys. And you could you could just imagine working with them. It would have just been like that. There wouldn't have been any, there certainly wasn't any rivalry. It, it, to us, it was like we just met our American brothers. It, it really was that, um, it really was that simple. Yeah, yeah, good soldiers work well with good soldiers. Yes. Right, I've just got to do this, so excuse me a second. I won't be uh, taking all my clothes off, unfortunately, for all the females watching and some of the guys. But I got given this uh, very kindly following an interview I did with, uh, if you want to go to the website, funkedinthehead.com, folks. I uh, did an interview uh, with Chris, and Chris very kindly sent me this hat. So I will put, I will try to remember to put Chris's link below. So Chris, if you're watching, thank you very much. I took this camping at the weekend and uh, it did me proud. Now I'm going to put my trucker's cap back on because I'll be sweating like mad. So thank you. There we are. Back to normal. Thank you, Chris. Right. So should we take a few more questions? Robin, are you okay for that? How are we doing yeah. for time? No, yeah, cool. There's, um, there's one here about pets. You see that one? About pets. Yeah. Robin, did you have any pets while serving in our units for our mascots? Um, when I was, uh, when I was uh, at Hereford for the first time, <clears throat> I moved in with my girlfriend, who's now been my wife for 42 years. Um, we had a, a black Labrador called Bamba for a while. Um, and then when we, we had kids and we moved to a bigger house, we ended up with a pig in the back garden called Horace. We had cats and rats and hamsters and a dog as well. Um, <laughs> so the house was like a menagerie. And uh, now our kids have all grown up and gone. They've got their own kids. Um, we have a um, ragdoll, a white ragdoll cat called Betsy, um, who lives in our apartment here in Prague with us. Um, I like cats. I like cats a lot. I prefer cats to dogs. Dogs are far too much like people. You can't really like them. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a, a man who I, 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 who likes. Kids. So uh, I've had it. Uh, and when you have kids, you have pets. Um, if you don't, you know, there's something missing in your house. I think. Yeah, I had a tortoise, Robin, and um, one day she just stopped moving and picked her up. Go, oh, what's going on here then? Tried to get it going again, but no, she wouldn't move. And uh, my mum said she's dead, Chris. <laughs> That's probably just winter. I just oh well we had all that as well I this crazy tortoise used to be on the uh, in, in the southwest our local news was our local news was the um, spotlight news and my tortoise was always on the spotlight news because she had escaped from her enclosure and she'd dig her way under the fence and they'd find her months later so she'd be back on the news and the news would be and viewers will be pleased to learn that Liz the tortoise has been found, happily munching away in a neighbour's lettuce patch. <laughs> but just quickly, she actually woke up early hibernating once and crawled, crawled out of her box, fell from the, the rafters in the garage onto concrete and survived, split all her shell and she was bleeding from the um, shell, but she lived through that. And... We lived in a place called Horrorbridge as a kid, and I used to take her down the local river, and tortoises actually float 
believe it or not, quite happily. They're quite fine in water. Um, and it's a good job I taught her how to swim because that next summer I had a friend over. Obviously, we were kids. And that kid put Liz in a bucket of water, right? We couldn't find her for three days. After Did three days... Say again? Did she have shell shock? Uh, she probably had shell shock from falling from, from the roof. But after this... Um, yeah, three days later, I went to the bottom of the garden. I thought, just checking that bucket. And bless her, there she was, still swimming away, doing a breaststroke, I taught her. <laughs> so, yeah, it was like um, an episode of Baywatch. That was my Liz. Um, right, where are, where are we? I'm, I'm, we're talking about tortoises on an SAS podcast. Would, would professional athletes have a chance of passing SAS selection with no military experience? No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't, because all they would have would be fitness. Um, they wouldn't have the skills required to uh, to navigate over mountains. They wouldn't have the uh, soldiering experience. They wouldn't have the weapons experience. They wouldn't have the leadership experience. Um, all they would have would be the fitness. So um, you had to, when I was serving, you had to do three years regular service before you could volunteer for selection, which meant you were usually at least 21. Um, most of the average age was 27. Um, you're a soldier. Yeah, yeah, you're not an athlete. You're a soldier. But if you look at SAS test week in the first period, which is on the mountains, the five-day test week is the equivalent, the equivalent of six marathons over the mountains with weights between 35 and 55 pounds in five days. That's what it's equivalent of in distance. So, no, they wouldn't. No, yeah, we... and. Um... I think the um, the the girl. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to call her a girl. The woman, the young woman that was the first to join the Marines, was um, she was a professional rower, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything went quiet on that. And I'm I'm thinking, uh, last we heard, she got injured. And I'm guessing that the MOD probably just told the papers to shut up and leave 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 the girl alone. You know, let her just get on get on with it because. I think they yeah. had they had all that nonsense when uh, Prince um, Prince Edward, Edward joined and there yeah. were paparazzi camped at the gate and uh, yeah. Well, there is an awful lot of um, political pressure on pushing somebody through, um, and they get this idea that you know you're going to push somebody through uh, simply on the grounds that they're a female, and it's not just about that; it's about the whole package and. If you've got a female that can complete the whole package, live with the guys, shit in a hole, eat the rubbish, deal with the diarrhea, um, uh, carry the weight, uh, because there's no special arrangements for small guys, so there shouldn't be any special arrangements for small females. And um, if you can do the whole package, all well and all, all power to your arm. Um, but uh, an awful lot of them, even if one does eventually pass, will find that. They probably don't want to be there anyway. Yes, yes, exactly. And it does make you wonder if the whole thing is... I know some people that are just firmly against it. Nothing to do with, with sexism or or, or um, just because... Um, I don't know. I think they just... They, again, it comes back to this political... I don't want to say correctness. It's not that, but it, it, it's... it's, it's um, I don't know. What do we say? Like a move by the left? It's it's postmodernist other values. That's what it is. But if you want if you want women to be infantrymen, make female infantry units. 
so that there's still one gender and have male infantry units so that you're not mixing and matching because as soon as you mix and match, sex comes into the play, you know, and people become protective of one another. You know, that's my girlfriend, that's my boyfriend, that's my mate, that's my uh, gender buddy, buddy, whatever it is. You know, it creates huge complications when people are in a tight environment. And um, people, uh, men in my era, uh, protected women. That was their role in life. That was their main role in life was to protect women and children. So if you've suddenly got a female in your unit, you're going to be far more protective of her than you are of the other soldiers in the unit. And there's going to be conflicts. It creates conflicts. Um, it may work amongst officers where their jobs are specifically administrative or leadership, but it certainly doesn't work uh, sitting behind a machine gun in the middle of the jungle um, with the enemy throwing artillery at you. Um, I don't think, I don't support it. It's nothing to do with sexism. It's to do with what will actually make the best soldiers, the best, the best fighting soldiers. That's me. Yeah, people often ask me what am I... <laughs> no, well, I mean, this is the thing. We're allowed to, you know, we're allowed to talk and, and uh, not we're not purposely being offensive. It's... Um, people say to me, what do I think of women in the Royal Marines? I say, well, it's a real nasty job if you think about it, killing people. Do, do, you, want, do, you, you, know, do you want a mum that took out <laughs> five Argentine machine gunners? So it's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, something suits some people, something suits others, but there you even go. In the, even in the Second World War, when the Russians were obliged to bring females into their armed forces, you know, the the main um, the main combat role that women had was either uh, anti-aircraft fire, firing artillery, or as snipers. Um, but when it came to being assault troops, you know, they didn't put them in that role. And it wasn't because they wouldn't put them in that role. It was because they knew they wouldn't be affected in that role. The 80% of people that go to prison are men for violent crime. Men are more aggressive and more naturally violent than women are. I know women can be pretty wild sometimes, but, you know, eight out of ten is what I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, don't... Um, uh, anyway, what the hell do you want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was on it, uh, the ship, the Marines detachment on Invincible, and either Invincible was the first ship to have women on board, or... It was that time in Navy history when it was the first time women were on all the ships. I can't remember. I seem to remember ours was um, um, ours was the first ship to have women on, and it yeah, it, it's it changes the dynamic. And I'll say a few things, and I'm only saying this just for the sake of it, you know, education. Um, apart from the fact it was the first time the Matlows started wearing aftershave down to scran so down into the gap to the galley which is quite quite interesting in itself um but bonnie was one of the girls she was um the first person in naval history to pass the ship's divers course um so she was all she was all up for it she she joined us on um the marines ran a marathon carrying our full kit around the flight deck one time and she came and joined us for a few laps of that. To the other side of the fence, you had literally women that were probably, uh, I'm not good with weights, but let's just say eight eight stone, possibly eight and a half stone. Yeah. 
and you had chief petty officers that would do that every night in the mess that weighed almost 20 stone, right? Well, what happens when a ship goes to action stations and it's had an exocet through it and everything's burning, everything's red hot, there's smoke everywhere, um, everyone's in shock, and that chief petty officer is at, at the bottom of a... I'm going to get in trouble now. I can't remember what the what the stairs were called, but um, you know he's at the bottom of a of a of a ladder, and the eight eight and a half stone wren is is supposed to be able to wrap a fire hose around him and lift him up. Um, I'm not saying I would have been able to do it either, to be honest, but you can kind of see where I'm going with that. Um, on the other hand, she probably handled a radar screen much much better than a bootneck did, so. Um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting. We had this weird situation, Robin, where we were on our way to Barbados, or we were coming back, and we had a Royal Naval officer who was a woman. She was a she was the ship's doctor. I say naval officer because she wasn't a wren. She was actually a Royal Naval officer. I don't get get the difference. But um, one of the guys, I'm saying it was a guy. I'm not sure if they ever found out who it was crept into her cabin one night and hit her over the head with a ball pain hammer eight times. So attempted murder, basically. This is as w when we're at sea, right? Oh. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those weird, shocking things that I say only happens in the military or in Hong Kong. Right? There's two places where some really kind of bizarre scenarios can take take place that civilians just probably wouldn't get their head around and um what was a bit strange is they flew the um oh I'm not sure if we're lo if we're losing our signal but they flew the uh, SIB on board so the investigation branch and we had to reenact that night which was almost like some kind of bizarre sods opera everybody had to go where they were on that night but of course I think it was half two in the morning when this attempted murder took place so you most people would have been asleep so we're all just sat in our mess deck and the um I can't remember who it was that they got to to narrate the murder mystery it, really it was like a murder murder bloody mystery night the person's on the tano going and now the murderer is creeping down B passageway He's now just passed the naffy, right? You're trying to go out your mess deck to take a leak and there's some blooming matlow who's been put on guard to make sure nobody, no, nobody is not where they're supposed to be. And that, like, what are you doing? I need a piss. All right, go on then, but be quick, right? You don't have a pee. Rush back to your mess, mess deck. And um, in the end, they narrowed it down to a jilted stoker, but they couldn't. I don't think um, any charges were uh, were ever pressed, but mm. yeah, how bizarre! So, um, oh, how bizarre. not that's not a... not blaming females on ships for that, but I'm just saying that's that that did cross. It'd be a shame to lose it now. Yeah, um, uh, coming back, it's, it's clicked on for a second there. There we are. There you go. I think we're back. Sorry about this, folks. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, friends at home, uh, we're going to take a couple more questions. Well, Robin's going to take a couple more of your questions. 
I am aware we're starting to get technical issues. Um, I should have put 50p in a meter. Right. Are we good again? I think so. Gosh. Yes. Robin, you thought the Iranian embassy had, you know, <laughs> false starts and, and, and technical issues. So wait, wait to try and run all this technology. Everything starts with a plan. And, <laughs> yeah, then, it and then it goes out the window. <laughs> right. Put another quid in the meter. Thank you, Q400. Um, have you killed someone? No, but I, I, I will do after tonight. Did you serve with Eddie Stone? Uh, he was uh, in the same in the SS at the same time as me, but in a different squadron. So we may have known each other's faces, but we didn't do it. I never worked with him. Never. Yeah, he's done a bit of TV work, hasn't he? He seems to have um, kind of done the circuit, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I did a lot of TV work um, maybe 15 years ago when I lived in London. It was very easy for me to get to Sky. and uh, But most of the TV work I've done has been, you know, political and serious stuff um, rather than entertainment stuff. I've done a few documentaries, um, you know, and, um, you know, obviously the famous BAFTA winning award film which documentary, um, which was... Uh, SAS Embassy Siege, made what? by Louise Norman and Peter Taylor. Um, that is, if people want to know about um, what happened on that day, that is the best and most accurate portrayal of that incident that ever happened, that was ever made. It is really excellent. There was me on it, uh, Tom McDonald, John McAleese, and uh, it was the first time any of us had spoken about it, um, and it was 25 years later. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it really is very, very well made and very well put together. Um, so if people do want to know the true story, it's pretty much there in an, in an hour and a half document. It's very, very good. Yes. Was it fairly recently, like in the last five, five years? Was that the one? No, no, no. It was, um, this was made in 2003. Okay, 2003. It's called SAS Embassy Siege, made by the BBC. Um, there are excerpts from it on my Facebook page, Robin E. Horsfall, and um, there's even a uh, cutting from it on um, on um, wiseoldparatrooper.co.uk on there. But um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the good stuff is on uh, on YouTube in little segments. Um, there was a, there was a movie made a few years ago which was absolute pants. Um, so. Um, Got nothing good to say. So they say nothing about it, really. Um, which may have been what you were thinking of. Yeah, no, no. I, I, it, it, it's there was one. I'm pretty sure Trevor Locke was in it. Was that the same one? Yeah, that's right. Trevor was there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think it's just that I saw it recently. That's probably what. What? Yeah, what? It comes around on the comes around on national TV once in a blue moon, mm. but they've cut it down to 60 minutes now. If anybody ever wants to uh, see the whole thing, let me know. I can. Um, I can send it to them in 10-minute sections. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure there's uh, probably a way around um, finding the whole thing in this in yeah. this, this day and age. I'll, I'll be looking into that. Um, all perfectly legally, of, co of course. Of course. <laughs> right. I've got a great question to finish on. It's from Ross Duffin. Hello, Ross. Thank you for supporting the podcast. By the way, folks... More and more of my videos are just getting demonetized and it's getting ridiculous now. Um, I did a wonderful chat 
about veteran suicide the other day, i.e. how to prevent it. It was in uh, the water mitty. You know, you know I'm not all into this water mitty thing, but I've done some work around that. All I did is try to put, you know, the mental health story across in this podcast and it's got demonetized, you know, it, it, and, and when I sometimes they give you feedback about why your, your podcast gets demonetized, not often, but sometimes they do. So I click the feedback button and it said um, excessive profanity. <laughs> that means basically the C word. And it's, it's just ridiculous because, yes, I have got a potty mouth, but it's not that much of a potty mouth that, that it's going to upset people over the age of uh, six, 16, which all my videos are set to. So anyway, so if you can support us on Patreon is what I'm trying to say. Friends, it's only £2 a month. You get a free VIP invite to my annual chat. Come and meet me. We can have some photos. We can go out and do some sport or something. I'll do a, a bit of a talk about what I've been up to over the last few years. You get all my memoirs for free in ebook form. Um, and I do a bit of life coaching and sort of behind the scenes updates. We, we all get together and have a Zoom chat and it's re really nice. So sorry to Robin, I'm just plugging my, uh, trying to pay my bills basically. <laughs> but the last question uh, that, <laughs> there we go. Get them this all out. Last words of the wise old paratrooper. Yes. <laughs> last question. <laughs> Where was I? Yes, Ross. Um, what is diversity like in the SAS? Are there many Gurkhas, Blacks, Asians, Commonwealth, etc.? Um, there are a lot of human beings in there. Um, we had we had lots of guys from Fiji. We had black guys. We had. Um, I remember there was one Gurkha that uh, got in there uh, after I left. Um, but it. I mean, when you were in um, airborne forces, especially, um, color was um, pretty much irrelevant. It had no place or say, or everybody got insulted about something. Your curly hair, your big nose, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too, you know, whatever it was, everybody had a nickname, but diversity wasn't a word that was even used uh, during my period of service. You just were what you were. You were a human being. Um, so, you know, those those, those, uh, those sort of questions often have a some kind of strange postmodern agenda to them. I'm not saying this person did, but uh, no, you know, uh, somebody. I was teaching children karate up in North London, and uh, the local authority came and asked me to fill in a diversity uh, form identifying the ethnic history of each each of my students and what the numbers were, and I crossed them all out and put human at the bottom. Um, I refuse to do it, um, and I still refuse to do it. People are people. My my wife's mixed race. My kids are mixed race. Um, um, I think there's far too much um, use of race as a political weapon, um, and there are a lot of situations in the in the current world where we should um, deal with problems of people being abused because they're being abused whatever the reason, you know, whatever the reason somebody's being abused, it's wrong, you know, and if you want to identify it to the colour of their hair or the colour of their skin or the accent that they speak, then it doesn't change the crime. The crime is that you're abusing an individual. Um, I, 
I think there's too many people using it as a as a weapon to gain some kind of dominance over another group in a reverse in a reverse psychology way. Another place where I can probably take cover and get a lot of flack. But you know, um, if you're a decent human being and you try to be a decent human being, you treat people decently, then you shouldn't have too much to concern yourself about. And if you say something and you don't intend it to be hurtful or insulting, then it's the intent of what you say, not whether you use the wrong word. Um, and get away from what the word is and get, a, get back to what the intention is. Soldiers and people who live in institutions together insult each other in the crudest way very often. And it's meant as a form of friendship. So, um, yeah, that's a, I, th I think I've said enough on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just out of interest, so Robin, do, do you, I mean, obviously times change, but do you recall many Gurkhas trying out, trying out for selection? Yeah, they, um, there were a few that came down. Um, uh, they, they weren't good enough. Um, I trained with, I worked with the, uh, the Gurkhas when I was in the Paras and, uh, did heavy carries and, um, my experience of them was that they weren't fit enough. Um, they couldn't do, they couldn't carry the weight. They have um, special teams that they were usually Sherpas that enter competitions on their behalf and win those competitions with races over the mountain. But um, as soldiers, I think um, I, I, I I think that they they're, they're as good as they're as good as the average other soldier really. Um, but um, they're not particularly outstanding in any in any way um those that came along and as i say one did pass um he was obviously clearly good enough and outstanding enough and he was probably a sherpa <laughs> you know but um yeah they're um they're uh they're a group of uh, soldiers left over from our empire past who um majority don't speak english um so it's very hard for them to coordinate with other troops on the ground, um, they're okay, but they're not special. I don't believe they're special. Yeah, and it, the Asian thing is interesting because as I sit here now, I actually cannot remember, other than obviously when I was in Hong Kong, because part of the British Army in Hong Kong is local um, Hong Kong residents, but, but I'm talking now in the UK, I don't remember a single Asian face. Um, in fact, the only Asian names were nicknames given to the English lads that just happened to look a bit Asian. <laughs> um, I don't remember many Asians, Robin. Do you? Uh, yeah, one of my uh, one of my good friends, even today, um, his um, his father, his mother was Chinese and his father was Scottish. <laughs> um, you know, so we used to always say he was a Gurkha in disguise. Um, yeah, um, we had uh, we had. Uh, few Pakistani guys and Indian guys in the Paras. But the thing about the Paras is they were a national regiment. So they came from all over the country. Whereas you've got if you've got a regiment that was based in Birmingham, like you know, you would you you would get a lot of black guys in that regiment. But the Paras had everybody from everywhere. So you know we had we had guys from all over which um which made our diversity um rather more broad than most other regiments in the British Army. I mean the guards never got a a black person in the guards until about the 1990. That was the first time, you know. Um, so there were, um, but you know, again, you know, it, it's getting back to this learning to 
treat everybody at first as a human being. And if you don't like them, it's because they're an asshole, not because of any other reason, you know, um, or maybe just because just they don't like you. Um, but uh, treat people as people. Um, and I'm not trying to be holier than now with that. There are, there are people uh, that I don't like from various different um, ethnic backgrounds, but it's not because of their ethnic background. Yes. And of course, um, when I was on ship, you had the Chinese laundry men, which was quite a, a bit of his naval history that goes back to obviously our ties with Hong Kong. So civilians that joined the British Navy ships to do the laundry. And yep. they did a bloody good job of that laundry. <laughs> well, you see, you were very lucky you had someone to do your laundry for you. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, it's the sort of thing you know you have to pay a lot of money for as a as a civilian. Someone to come in and do your washing and and uh, yeah look after you. But no, these guys did a great job. In fact, there was one funny story where one of the matlows was out fishing on the flight deck and um, he was chuffed to bits. He caught an octopus. He couldn't believe he caught this octopus. So he ran up to the Chinese. Uh, mess deck all excited and he knocked on the door we used to know all their names i can't you know can't remember now but it would have been something like lee fung he said lee fung i've bought you this octopus and lee fung went fuck off we ain't eating that <laughs> that's it demonetized again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes well, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure again. Thank you so much for spending so much time uh, with us, answering all the questions. Um, I'm going to put all, all your links um, below. Um, also a link for Chris's website, Funked in the Head, so people can check that out. Um, obviously, you're going to come and join us again, Robin, I hope. Yeah, it's great, mate. You give a bloke like me a chance to talk about himself for three hours. What? What can go wrong? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, it, it's fascinating. And um, again, you know, I think I might have said this last time, but what was I? I was 10 years old. I remember watching the BBC News and the Embassy Siege like it was yesterday. And it was the one of the most eye-opening, iconic moments, I think, in most of our, our, our lives, really. Um, and gosh, how little did I know back then that here I would be speaking to a to a legend um i i always tell people my life is just brilliant <laughs> it, it it you know you make your choices and um when they come good and at times like this i'm just absolutely honored so thank you so much um i'm just gonna play us out so if you just want to hold the line a sec robin um to our friends at home massive love to you all big respect uh, as I said, please consider joining the Patreon just to help me do shows like this and keep doing them. Um, your support is amazing. Massive thank you to Brooke Benson um, for helping with the technology today and doing the chat. That's it. I've said enough. I'm going to play you out. See you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.